This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. The CARES Act expires this week, meaning the Lifeline Supplement of $600 comes to an end unless Congress and the Senate negotiate a new package to deal with the economic catastrophe in the midst of the still surging pandemic. The mostly secret negotiations are stuck by divisions within the Republicans, while the Democrats, pushing their heroes package, don't appear to have a clear strategy to win. David Dayen, editor of the American Prospect, whose daily unsanitized reports have so carefully unpacked the details of the CARES Act, showing who has benefited most, is with us to discuss this last-minute stalled negotiations over what kind of extension or package we're likely to see. Then later in the show, Alex Vitali, author of The End of Policing, joins us for a deeper look into the nature and role of policing as a critical component of maintaining our economic system, essentially as a tool of social control. Police violence, in Alex Vitali's view, is not an aberration to be reformed, but a feature of the system. We get Alex's take on various reform efforts, how he sees police and camouflaged federal cops quelling the broad movement that has emerged in response to police killings, and how he envisions public safety without policing. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased today to have David Dayen with us again. He is the executive editor of the American Prospect. His work appears just about everywhere, especially you can read Unsanitized, his, I think, daily report. And uh, he's done probably more than most to uncover the sort of, maybe we shouldn't call it shenanigans, but I will, of the CARES Act. And he's had two books. The first one we talked about right here, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. That came out in 2016 and won prizes. And the new book is published by the New Press, and it's called Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And David, we'll have you back to talk about that book. I can't wait to do that. But today we're going to talk about what is probably in the front of everybody's attention because the relief programs that come under the rubric of the CARES package are coming to an end. Two in particular, that's the eviction moratorium uh, ran out on Friday and the extra $600 a week supplement that has done so much to alleviate even the poverty rate also will conclude. And then there's other parts of that that again, are going to come to an end. And all of this, if these things come to an end now, the economy, which is already so precarious, will probably be completely derailed. And at the same time, the virus is continuing to surge. Uh, Lockdowns are once again being put into place. Unemployment claims are up. 
and negotiations in the Senate are filled with division. And that's where I want us to go. So maybe we could just begin, David Dayen, with the state of play on the negotiations in our hallowed Congress and Senate this weekend. And just to get the listeners up to speed, maybe you could give us the state of play, you know, like you're doing with unsanitized. The Republicans appear to be divided. Nancy Pelosi said she will not accept a mere short term extension of the 600 per week unemployment edition, but wants a longer term extension as part of a larger package. So give us the state of play. And I've got like two or three other parts of this question, but go ahead. Well, you know, other than everything you talked about, uh, things are going great. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we knew that these programs were expiring for months. We we knew that the unemployment boost of $600 a week was going to end at the end of July. We knew that the eviction moratorium, the federal eviction moratorium, now there there are other state ones that are in varying degrees. Some are in place, some have expired. But we knew that the federal one was going to expire. We, we knew all of this. And Republicans came back from a two-week break, seemingly without having a plan put together for how they were going to solve the divisions within their own caucus to at least put up some bill that would contrast what the Democrats in the House passed two months ago, which was called the HEROES Act. That was the that was the bill they passed in May, three point five trillion dollar bill that had a host of things that were sort of deferred from the first several coronavirus relief packages and some extensions, including an extension of the unemployment benefits up until the end of the year. So Republicans came in saying we are determined to make this a one trillion dollar bill. So that's about less than a third of the size of what House Democrats want. So that's how far apart we are in theory. They spent the whole week bickering amongst themselves about what would fit in that bill that that would fill that one trillion dollar space. It looks like the Trump White House really wanted a payroll tax cut, which was kind of a crazy idea, considering that the people who are suffering the most right now are out of work, and he wanted to give help to people who are still working. That ended up not getting enough traction within the Republican caucus and got got thrown out. The final bill will be released. I doubt it will have any Democratic support, which means it's likely not to pass the Senate. And so we sort of are back at square one, and then there will be a negotiation between Republicans and Democrats with the the HEROES Act on the left pole and and this $1 trillion bill, which looks like it will include some money for schools, about $100 billion for schools, another round of stimulus checks that we saw in the first time round, an extension of unemployment benefits, but at a much lower rate. It could be as low as $200 a week extra relative to 600 a week. So that's a tremendous number that will be essentially, it's essentially a, a, an income cut for 25 million people who have, are collecting uninsurance, uh, unemployment insurance benefits. So, you know, what is that going to do to the greater economy? If people don't have that money to spend, they have to hoard that money. Uh, what is that going to do to businesses that are already struggling? And now there's just less purchasing power in the economy where people have less money available to spend. So there are a variety of sort of moving parts. There are some other things in the Republican bill, but we haven't really seen it yet. So we don't know exactly what it is. 
But that's sort of the, the state of play right now. Good. So there's a couple of things that come out of that, actually a lot. But so one thing is that, you know, from the outset here, it, it seemed as if leadership was handed over to the Senate. This didn't begin in the House. And then they waited to let, of all people, Mitch McConnell, who, as you know, as everyone knows, really is not in favor of this. But at, at least when the CARES package, when he got that through, he said, hold your nose and vote for it. Now he's got more rebellion in his ranks. But the Democratic leadership, this is really what I want to move to. They've been pretty pathetic, I think, so far. And as you lay out in your column week after week, what they've pursued seems to be like a self-defeating strategy. And I know I've heard elsewhere you're saying it's not really a strategy. We can get to that. But they've (laughs) allowed Mitch McConnell to frame the initial legislation and push it through the Senate, where the Republicans have a majority, obliging the Democrats to get in their revisions. And in the case of the CARES Act, the corporate bailout the Democrats allowed and then pushed through. It turned out, as you have well documented and elsewhere, that it was a $4.5 trillion gift without conditions to be administered by the Fed. This is probably not surprising, given that the Democrats' top concern seems to be the well-being of their donors. But following the CARES Act, Pelosi and Schumer vowed to act more aggressively. And then they ended up not it seems, and please come in on this, not doing anything very different to follow up on the Interim Emergency Funding Act, and they came up empty-handed, failing to get aid for state and local governments. So are they doing the same thing? And I guess the second part of that question is, why aren't they doing the obvious thing to try to win? I mean, you know, what we saw in March was when it came time to pass the CARES Act, Mitch McConnell wrote that bill in his office. And then there were uh, some tweaks that were made to satisfy the Democrats. Uh, But, you know, McConnell knew what he wanted. He wanted that corporate bailout. And he wrote a bill that had pretty much just that. And, you know, it set the terms for debate and it forced Democrats to tweak the, the legislation, but not the main framework, which included that corporate bailout. So what do we do this time? Well, House Democrats passed a wish list bill, a $3.5 trillion bill two months ago. McConnell ignored it. And so on this bill, what McConnell wanted, sort of his North Star, is this corporate immunity, this immunity from lawsuits from customers or workers who are infected with coronavirus. There are no such lawsuits or very little of them. There's a claim by the Chamber of Commerce and whatnot that there's a flood of lawsuits happening, but it's, it's not really the case. But that's the one thing. So like in March, there was one thing that McConnell wanted and he was willing to add on whatever else as long as he got that one thing, the corporate bailout. This time, there's one thing he wants. He wants that immunity. He's willing to add on this and that here and there in order to get that. When Democrats got the chance to pass the HEROES Act, because, you know, it's kind of the Democratic way to just sort of listen to everybody and throw in the kitchen sink, they put in 50 different things. There's no one thing that Democrats are saying we have to have. And so it's harder to just sort of build your narrative that way. Now, I think that the fact that it's taken so long for Republicans to come up with a bill could give Democrats an opening because it's very possible that Republicans will need Democratic votes in order to get this bill passed. And if they want something to pass, 
Democrats do have an opportunity here to set terms, much like they did on the CARES Act. And I think they squandered the opportunity on the CARES Act, but they have another opportunity here if Republicans are serious about, you know, wanting to pass something that, you know, allows the economy not to fall into a ditch because uh, you've, you've just crashed this amount of fiscal spending. So what is that one thing going to be? Is it going to be state and local government relief? Because there's none of that in the Republican bill. So there was a trillion dollars of that in the Democratic bill. The, the, the Republican bill uh, is a trillion dollars total and doesn't have any of that. So uh, that could be a place where Democrats make their stand. Could it be that we want the full extension of unemployment insurance of $600 up till the end of the year rather than a, a truncated version of it? So that's really the question is, where do Democrats go from here? I think right now they're just kind of saying McConnell is dithering with his caucus because they don't know how to govern or set a policy, which is fine. But, you know, the, the, the key will be what they do after that. Right. And this is, this is so pregnant with so many questions to come out of what you've just said, David, Dan, because obviously it seems almost inexplicable to ordinary people who see that the Democrats have the majority in the House and there's mobilization around the country. We're in a crisis situation, and it just seems like they should just be doing the obvious. And so, you know, I already asked you that. Why don't they do that? It gives them the best chance to win because of all the reasons I just said, and, you know, where legislation is supposed to start. So they don't and haven't so far put forward this clear set of demands, even though you've just outlined some that could be there. So, you know, and what would be great in a parliamentary world, I suppose, is for them to put those demands out there and let the Republicans oppose them because they would be setting themselves up for defeat. And of course, everybody knows the election is coming up and that is a possibility. But the big issue here is that the Democrats, you know, are always doing this dance because the donors are their top priority. But we're talking about, again, an emergency situation. And it seems that, that as you just laid out and your writing has, that the donors have been very well taken care of in the first iteration of the CARES Act. And even they can see, you know, the social unrest all over the country. And it, so I guess the question would be, why they don't also join in on this, on the consideration that seems the most pressing. You've just laid out the first one, which was that an extension of the $600 supplement with no compromise. There's also the issue of health care, as we see in no other country in the world where the virus has hit, have 5 million people lost their health insurance, or that hospital workers, frontline workers, don't necessarily have health care. Then there's, you just mentioned that what's not in the Republican bill, state and local government aid, I don't know, food stamps, eviction moratorium, continue, uh, personal income. So I think here, just what's required before we go into and you just laid out as well that the Republicans top priority is that they don't face liability as they force people back to work. And even now, you know, forcing the schools opening is not working very well for them. So what about the Democrats, though? Yeah. What? Yeah. Are they worried about the? Well, go on. I'll, I'll ask. I mean, as you it, it's a tragedy that we've even got to this point. The fact that people who are suffering, who are in a situation where there are no real jobs to go back to for millions of people, 
that there are increasing calls for lockdowns and increasing economic moves backwards, uh, particularly in the states that are surging. Unemployment first-time claims went up last week. The fact that they're getting their last boosted paycheck right now and that there's nothing in place to fix this situation for them is an absolute failure of leadership at all levels. And a, a lot of it was set in motion by the CARES Act, which did not have a boost on employment for the duration of the crisis. It just had it for a date certain. And it also did not have the kind of state and local government relief that would have allowed states and cities to have the confidence they could keep the lockdown going until the virus was suppressed. That wasn't in the CARES Act bill. And because that wasn't in the CARES Act bill, it induced states and cities to reopen prematurely. And that created a lot of the surges that we're seeing right now around the country. There's a political science professor at, at Marquette University who did some, some studies of this that I reported on. And it showed that if your state was more reliant on the individual income tax as a portion of your overall budget, you were more likely to reopen early. So it's very clear that the structure of the CARES Act was kind of incoherent. At one level, it was telling people to stay home. At another level, it was telling cities and states, you have to reopen pretty fast because otherwise you're going to have no money left in your budget. So what we need right now is something coherent. We, we need something that fits together and actually works together that will ensure that people will have the ability to stay in their homes, to get basic necessities and survive until such time as this pandemic is over. Now, I mean, it's staggering also that there's not that much money to fight the pandemic in these bills that are supposed to be fighting the pandemic. I mean, there was one study that showed about 8% of the funding in these bills uh, go towards actual things like testing or hospitals or, or things that actually manage the pandemic. The pandemic is the economy right now. If we don't fix the virus, we're not going to fix the economy. And the further you wait to fix the, to solve the problem of the virus, the more money you're going to have to spend on basic emergency spending to get people to the point where they can, they can survive. So as far as what Democrats should do, I mean, we are going to see people in terms of evictions, in terms of uh, foreclosures, in terms of food bank lines. I mean, we're going to see a tremendous amount of pain out there over the next several weeks if nothing is done. And I think all you have to do as Democrats is highlight what's going on uh, in, in the country. We are, we are uh, sort of creating a depression before our eyes if nothing is done. And I think politically, it's not hard to explain that and to show that, you know, I mean, there's a school of thought that says, well, if everything's bad, it'll, you know, that'll rebound on Trump. And so you might as well just let it go until November. But Democrats aren't going to do that because they actually have a heart and they, they might want to, or at least they, you know, they claim to, and, and, and they, they don't want to see people suffer. So the, the moment right now is to just shine a light on what's happening in the country and what's about to happen in the country and say, this is absolutely wrong. And the pressure hopefully will build from there. I think you said it 
Right. The, this is the moment. And it's a moment that, you know, doesn't always present itself in terms of trying to do big and bold things. And that's why this is so disappointing, even though, you know, you're getting Nancy Pelosi and others mouthing very often some of the right things. They certainly, I mean, her discussion on um, health care extensions through COBRA was pathetic, given that that's the very most expensive way to have health care when you've lost your insurance at work. It would have been the greatest opening ever to say everybody should have Medicare for all. But of course, that's not what she's going to say. Or the others, some of the Democrats would. And I, I, I guess just to follow up mm-hmm. a little bit more on their performance, they, like all the others, are somewhat under pressure from their base and from their donors. But in this case, Do you think that the Democratic leadership is worried about the cost of what they're proposing or that there are some within their ranks, say the former blue dogs or whatever they're calling themselves now, who are more who are put off by these packages? Surely, I mean, this is where you really want the kind of leadership who explains who can explain what to do in times of crises like this. But I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. I think they shouldn't be worried about that because it'll only get more expensive later if you don't fix the problem now. So in terms of a fiscal response, you want to front load it. You want to have as much fiscal response right now or else it's just going to be more expensive down the road. And I think I think there are some people in the caucus who do get that. It was disappointing on the HEROES Act two months ago to see Nancy Pelosi shy away from things There's a technical term called automatic stabilizers. And all that just means is that we're going to keep these crisis measures in until the crisis is over. And Pelosi wasn't willing to do that because it would have it would have been seen as a as a large amount of money that you would have to give to the bill in in the 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 way that bills are scored, the way that they're budgeted at the congressional budget office level. uh, It would have looked like a lot of money if you said, we're going to do this until the crisis is over. And so she shied away from that, even though that had the support of blue dogs of everybody in the caucus. She didn't do it. She didn't put it in the bill. There were things in the HEROES Act that would have canceled some student debt and then after they saw how much that would cost, they cut that back. So there, there's still this obsession with, with deficits, which is totally weird on a bill that costs $3.5 trillion, right? Like, what's the difference between $3.5 and $3.6 trillion? I mean, in the public consciousness, it's all just one giant number. So the, it did not make sense to nickel and dime this at the edges when you have a bill that was so big anyway. But, you know, I mean, one of the problems is, is that they had this this kitchen sink bill and they didn't have sort of a coherent strategy for how to get it passed or what parts to emphasize. So that, I think, was the kind of the larger problem there. I, I wrote something about Nancy Pelosi and her leadership in this crisis and how it, it sort of was indicative of her leadership throughout. You hear a lot of myth making around Pelosi, around her being someone who takes the Republicans are the cleaners uh, over and over again. I think that that what has happened during this pandemic frustrates that narrative greatly. And we'll see what we what transpires here uh, on this next relief bill, which is probably going to be the last one. That's at least what McConnell has said. And I think the proof will will come out of, of this process. And, you know, I'm obviously I 
I, I don't want to see people suffer. So I, I hope it's going to be a good outcome. But, you know, I'm not encouraged by what I'm seeing. Do we know in terms of what the new package is, its expiry date is? You just mentioned that McConnell said it would be the last one. And I think by implication, everything you're say, saying so far, David, Dan, is that mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi makes it look like she's the most capable, but it's she's being outflanked by McConnell always. And there is no real transparency. We only get the leaks, it seems. We don't really watch this being done. Yeah. I mean, the to- problem is that's one problem, right, is yeah. that. Pelosi has sort of commandeered all policymaking within the Democratic caucus, and she's making the decisions and then presenting it to the caucus fully formed, like, take it or leave it, here it is. So, you know, that's just a problem for Democratic decision making. You know, I I don't live in her district, but my representative has nothing to do with the process that's leading to this very consequential outcome. So that's one problem. Uh, We don't know exactly what the expiration dates are. I can tell you in the Democratic bill, uh, the $600 boost goes to the end of the year. There's more one-time checks, but that's, you know, that's a one-time procedure. I believe most of the deadlines that, you know, are expiring now get extended out to the end of the year in the HEROES Act. So I I think it was kind of a, a mistake to make these things expire in four months in the CARES Act. I, I mean, they, they knew who was president, right? They knew that his he, he was going to have a less than stellar response to a deadly virus. And the idea that, oh, this thing's going to wrap up in four months was always, I thought, kind of short-sighted. might have been true if we were Europe, but we're not. And, and it was very clear, especially when we didn't give the kind of support to states and cities that they needed to wait it out. So I think the problem really fell right there at the beginning of this. And that created the situation that we're in today. And we also have this situation, as you've just laid out, that the pandemic is has gotten worse. You know, we're not in the second phase of it yet. We're still in the first and we're getting another surge because people went back to work. There being you have leaks and you hear the Republicans saying, well, if we give them too much money, that's a disincentive to work. Well, obviously, that's the whole point that we need people to stay at home so that we can get past this first part of it. And then on the other hand, and this has nothing to do with with the package per se, but you've got uh, the politicization of mask wearing so that you've got people out there who are militantly opposed to it, and many of whom say they wouldn't take a vaccine either. So, you know, th- this is really the worst possible uh, way to deal with this pandemic in a situation, as you've outlined and others as well, that there were tremendous opportunities squandered here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to me, even as you were speaking, David, just to hear that their first idea was four months or to the end of the year. And what were they taking into account? The question of the election, we could have a different president. I mean, what were what were they thinking? (laughs) And that's that that begs the whole question of strategy. But, you know, we're sort of out of time. And I kind of wanted to really alert the listeners to your daily reports in unsanitized at the American prospect dot org. But maybe just finally wrap it up with any signs of hope or otherwise 
Yeah, I mean, this is really crunch time. And, and usually the political system waits until the very, very, very end and then comes up with something that's not necessarily good policymaking, but it might it might produce an outcome that at least doesn't leave people to fend for themselves. So I think this is the moment for your listeners to really put the pressure on uh, in the way that they know how, which is calling and emailing and, and getting in the face of, uh, well, not physically in the face, right? Not now, but just, you know, making themselves known to their legislators that we still have tremendous problems out here and, and, and compounding it by cutting off prematurely emergency relief would just be disastrous. And so uh, I urge people listening to uh, make themselves heard on this. In every way. And I want to thank you for what you're doing, David Day, and executive editor of the American Prospect. As I mentioned, his daily report is really vital. It's called Unsanitized. And you can find that as well uh, at AmericanProspect.org. His brand new book is Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. We're going to talk about that in a future program. And his other book was Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Greatest Foreclosure fraud. That story seems to be going on. Thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio, David Dayen. All right. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today, we're going to be discussing the end of policing, among other larger questions about coercion and repression with Alex Vitale, who is an absolute expert on this issue. And I'm going to tell you more about him. But let's just start with the headlines today. And that is that we begin August with front page articles and editorials in the nation's top newspapers record, let's say it, cataloging the use of police force in protests in Los Angeles, Portland, New York, and around the country. And their point is to show how little has changed despite the huge ongoing mass protests led by Black Lives Matter against police brutality and raising the central demand of defunding the police. But much of the discussion now seems to be around the use of unidentified agents in unmarked vans during the past several weeks apparently from the federal government, who come and whisk away protesters. In Portland, the protests grew enormously and led to a wall of moms, a wall of dads, a wall of vets, and others to protect protesters from these camouflage masked men in military fatigues without identifying insignia who were sent to wage war on protesters, uninvited, I should say, by local authorities and state authorities in Portland. And this begs the question about the larger issue that we're going to discuss today, which is the role of policing, whether local law enforcement or perhaps unidentified federal cops and troops in masks. Now, I also want to bring in before we begin, Alex, is that over the years, body cams and phone videos have opened a new window into police practices that are often violent and sometimes murderous. And after these months that we've seen a protest all during this dangerous COVID pandemic, in fact, the largest movement we've seen in decades and showing no sign of going away, Trump, of course, then came in and mobilized these force. And that another question that I'm going to want to bring up is whether or not the presence of these 
armed clad massed forces has changed the conversation about defunding the police. So Alex Vitale is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. We've had him on the show several times, and he is the author of The End of Policing, published by Verso Press. And you can also find his articles and interviews widely. Just Google them, or you can follow him on Twitter at AVTally. And we're going to be talking about his book. But Alex, we just laid out a little bit about how to fund the police has become the central demand from the protest movement. It was really a radical demand and then and even one that seemed utopian. But now it's a catch all in a way. And I want you to unpack it and see how, you know, once it's really been out there, how we've seen it mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But generally, you could say that people want to see the police as a force that protects them rather than than a force that menaces and threatens them. And you've long made this case for defunding it, or at least not continually increasing the force of repression and incarceration in your book, The End of Policing. So let's begin, I think, just with that role of policing, what it is that they do in society. And this necessarily will bring up the other questions that I just outlined. Well, thanks, Susie. So uh, a lot to chew on there. I think, you know, maybe it's good to start with what differentiates the current moment from what has gone before. And so while the ideas of shifting resources from policing into community needs is not new, the idea of police abolition is not new, it was something that tended to percolate under the surface It was certainly not getting a lot of mainstream media attention. And what what was going on before were kind of two two strains. On the one hand, you had kind of voices in the streets that often focused on things like, you know, let's jail killer cops. Let's get accountability for the killing of people in our family, in our community, right? And then a second kind of part of that was to tighten up accountability systems and the hope, you know, that punishing officers and and tightening these policies would prevent those kinds of killings from happening. The other strain was the kind of procedural justice reform strain that you could see in the Obama administration's task force on 21st century policing that said, oh, well, what we need is to restore the community's trust in policing by getting them to be more professional and less biased. And we do that with things like implicit bias training and de-escalation training and body cameras. And the moment we're in now has kind of rejected both of those strains as ineffective. We've tried some of the accountability stuff, and it either, when we did see an officer arrested, it didn't make any difference to policing. And we have these ideas about policy changes that, when implemented, didn't really make much of a difference. And even even that was somewhat rare, but the police just dragged their feet. They won't really implement this stuff. And the procedural justice stuff, you know, Minneapolis did all this stuff, all the training, the body cameras, the changes to force policies. It just made no difference. So I don't think anyone expected 
this explosion of voices so focused on the idea that we cannot fix policing, we can only reduce its impact. And I think not just stop additional spending, but we got to get the police out of our lives in as many ways as we possibly can. And, and there's no preset limit to what that is. It's just a question of process of pushing that envelope as far as we possibly can. And we are doing that. And I want to thank you for that, Alex, by bringing it back to what's different, because I started out by saying that that radical demand, which some would have thought of as utopian, led in the case, and you brought it up, of Minneapolis, where we saw the callous disregard for human life and and murder on screen, and they didn't even care that they had body cams or videos of it in the killing of George Floyd, that the Minneapolis City Council first discussed defunding the police. And then they talked about how all their decades of reform had led to naught, and they had to just disband the police. And this, of course, has led, as you've said, to really fundamental questions that you've been working on and writing about. But also it did bring up, like, is it the idea that it's impossible to sensitize a desensitized force or to to reform it? Or is it just the case that that even bringing in an entirely new police force would not change the fundamental dynamic. And so what is that fundamental dynamic? Yeah, this this idea of like dismantling a police force and rebuilding it from scratch, as was done in Camden, New Jersey, is not what I'm talking about. An excellent piece in Jacobin by my friend Brendan McQuaid lays out why Camden is not the model that people are talking about. So it's not that we think we can remake the culture of policing if we just bring in the right officers with the right training, because ultimately police are violence workers. That's what distinguishes them from other parts of government is that authority, ability, and willingness to use violence. And what people are demanding is that we find nonviolent solutions to things like problems of violence. And so if we're going to break the cycle of violence, we need to stop the police violence as well. There are parts of Southern California where police are responsible for 10, 12, 14% of all homicides. Nationally, they're responsible for 8% of all homicides in the United States. So that's a big source of violence that we need to address directly as well. As you said that, I looked at the August 1st edition of the L.A. Times and the front front page article is video police uh, shows police force at protests. And it shows how in dealing with the protests over Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd, that the police used projectiles that they fired directly at protesters heads and at protesters as a way of shoving the crowd back. So you get right then and there. I think what you're saying is that it is essentially a force of coercion. And now we're talking about two different things here, admittedly, because on the one hand, we're talking about crowd control and limiting the ability, let's say, to uh, massively protest or by trying to use all kinds of new methods that we've seen police come up with, like kettling and other forces. But then on the other hand, the everyday policing that you write about and still say that you know, they're correlated and that we need to look at this basic issue. And so I think that underlying what you've been saying is, and, and that is so openly apparent now, is that policing is about social control. 
And if that's the case, and that in fact, we're endangered by it, (laughs) rather than protected by it. Let's hear a little bit about, I don't want to skip to the end of your book and to your solutions. I want to get there. So let's hear a little bit about your argument. Well, let me just say that that you talk about the the difference between protest policing and everyday policing. And of course, there, there are obvious differences in, in the details, but we don't want to create an artificial separation here because all policing is political. And what we're seeing happening in the protests is political leaders turning what are political problems over to the police to manage so that instead of actually engaging the demands of the movement in a meaningful, fruitful way, instead of creating a real political process, they have shut people out, shut people down and attacked the protests. So, While we see this as an abuse of policing, which it obviously is, I mean, every day the police are out there making our argument for us that they are violence workers who are unreformed and unreformable, but also there's a political failure at work here. And the same thing is true when we take a problem of youth violence or untreated mental illness or homelessness or failed schools and we turn that over to the police to manage That's also a political failure by the same politicians. And I often say about the book that it's really a book about political accountability, not a book about police accountability, because the police didn't invent the war on drugs. The police did not defund the schools. The police did not create mass homelessness. Now, they have their own politics and their unions, you know, back horrible right wing political analysis and tough on crime politics. But we can't solve this problem by just going after the police. We have to hold the politicians who continually turn to the police to solve society's problems. And we've got to hold them accountable. And that's really a big part of what the kind of defund movement is. It's a way of saying not another dime for policing. We want our problems solved in ways that don't criminalize us, but that give us hope, opportunity, Uh, resources, healing, et cetera. One of the things that I had on this show about less than a month ago was, or maybe it was at the end of the school year, kids from Dorsey High School talking about leading the movement to get the police out of schools in Los Angeles. And it turned out that a huge part of the school budget went toward the police force. And in these minority neighborhoods, The police did not see the students uh, as someone to protect, but looked at them as suspects. And so they wanted them out. But even a a progressive uh, city council would not go all the way to defunding school police. And so kind of I'm just bringing it up as a sort of window on how difficult it is, because, as you say, the police are doing a lot of things now that perhaps they weren't meant to do. And I know in in your arguments here and elsewhere, You talk about the way that this has come about and that in the era of austerity and the dismantling of the welfare state, instead of dealing with the problems like homelessness and lack of health care and joblessness and everything else. They've said to me is that, unfortunately, we're kind of getting the worst of both worlds because we're getting an... Is it the sort of substitute for the welfare state that we come up with coercion and repression? 
Well, I think that's exactly it, right? For 40, 50 years, right, we've had this neoliberal austerity politics that says that the job of government is to subsidize and create a free pass for the most successful parts of the economy, tax subsidies, deregulation, in hopes that they'll become so successful that some of that will trickle down to the rest of us. But it hasn't worked. What it's done is it's created mass homelessness, mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, mass economic precarity that's that's driven people into black markets of drugs and sex work and stolen goods. It's created failed schools, right? And then when those problems, whether it's problems of disorder or what we call crime or whatever, emerge then instead of going back and saying, oh, we need to fix the schools, oh, we need to provide people housing, they turned it over to the police to manage those problems. So if you talk to groups like LA Can, like the Youth Justice Coalition in LA, they're very clear about this because they're on the ground with those communities that have been the victims of austerity first and then criminalized. And they're all very clear. The solution to this is not to give the police sensitivity training, right? It is to get rid of the criminalization process and to actually put resources into either addressing profound market failures, right? This is not about a little social program here or there, right? Or to provide, you know, direct much needed services. It's about housing first. It's about fixing the schools. It's about giving young people, real economic opportunities, summer jobs, you know, overcoming the legacies of trauma and violence in the community. And and that's really what this movement is about. I want to ask you one more question before we get to some of your solutions and to go back to the original question about what's happening now with federal troops, you know, muddying the waters. And that is, many people think that a good reform Maybe one that would work is community policing, not having police live, you know, outside the community, but be part of it, get to know people, the beat cop, you know, somehow in this, uh, what we call it, rose glass version of what possibly existed before. And that somehow this might, you know, solve the problem and as well address the problem that in communities where there's violence, people want the police to to be there to help them in emergency situations. You know, there's there's a great book about this, about Los Angeles that's come out in the last year, The Limits of Community Policing by Daniel Gascon and Aaron Roussel. And I interview them on my YouTube channel about the book. And they they went out into Los Angeles neighborhoods and spent years looking at how community police meetings and community policing was playing out. And they found, you know, the community is who the police say the community is. The police have their own ideas about what a good community looks like. The police are picking winners and losers in terms of, you know, zoning things, what kind of stores go in. And basically, in the end, what tools do police have to solve our community problems? They got guns and handcuffs and pepper spray and tear gas, right? They don't have access to jobs. They don't have access to housing. They don't have access to mental health services. They don't have access to drug treatment. They don't have counselors for the schools, right? They don't have any of the things that would really make these communities better places to live in. 
So community policing is insidious in part because it tries to get us to accept the idea that police are the appropriate tools for solving our problems. And this just enables a continuation of this kind of austerity politics. We're really talking about here, Alex Vitali, is the notion, I guess, of the role of the police in public safety and ideas of reforms. And I don't want to go right to your solution, which I think we'll get to at the end, but uh, we had uh, Philip McCarris at your suggestion here on the show, and he laid out a bunch of alternatives. And afterwards, I saw that people said, well, yeah, but if you have domestic violence, for example, do you really want to call a social worker if, you know, one of the members is armed and dangerous or do you, you know, in other words, they're saying this is still still part of this idea that these demands are utopian, unrealistic. And I want you to address that. Yeah. And you should you should have my friend Lee Goodmark on L-E-I-G-H Goodmark, who's written an amazing book called Decriminalizing Domestic Violence. She spent over 20 years in the domestic violence field and watch the entire thing get turned over to the criminal justice system. And in the end, no, no women have been helped. This is a myth. First of all, for, for decades, right, there was no response to domestic violence. And then there were beginning to be these women-led community-based movements to try to help women, either to fix their families or to get away from them. But that whole system got captured by the criminal justice system, in large part because of the 94 Crime Bill and the Violence Against Women Act. And many, many of the women who do this work now want to get rid of the Violence Against Women Act and get this out of the criminal justice system. To go back to creating community-based family supports and community-based pathways for independent living, if that's what's needed. So many victims of domestic violence still won't call the police precisely because they don't want the criminal justice system involved. And when the police do show up, they often make the situation worse. And I'll just recommend one more book, Arrested Justice by Beth Ritchie, which specifies in in horrible detail the way this is especially true for women of color. And this is really good. And I want to just add your book to this and and get to the end of it, because your book is called The End of Policing. And it's published right now by Verso. And we're offering it as a thank you gift in our fund drive. But before we, you know, go more about that, you actually go through all of the history of policing. And you also go into the various forms of policing. Now, we saw in Portland that it was the border patrol, BORTAC, that was mobilized and brought in. And we've seen their role you know, on the Mexican border and elsewhere, and you go through all of them. And yet at the end of your book, you basically say that the way to solve the question of policing is to end policing. So I want to do both things. I want to talk about one, the way that, you know, the troops have been used to kind of not augment, but replace or be more violent, let's say, in a war against protest. And then finally talk about, you know, what the alternatives that you see and vision are. So, you know, states had laws against drugs for for many years, but Nixon said, you know, 
we need to get these white Southern Democratic voters into the Republican Party after the victories of the civil rights movement. So he said, I got an idea. Why don't we criminalize drugs at the federal level, create this war on drugs to signal to white voters that we're going to be the new party of racism, of racial animus, and we're going to use criminalization rather than trying to bring back Jim Crow. And so he creates the DA and this massive federal law enforcement apparatus to solve a political problem. And that's exactly what's going on today. Trump has decided that one of his reelection planks is to say that the problems of big city America are not failures of housing policy, failure of infrastructure, failure of economic development policies, failure to provide basic health care for people. No. It's gangbangers and illegal immigrants and Antifa. And he's going to turn those problems over to the police to manage, whether local officials want them or not. And to me, the the thing that's so disturbing is to see people like, you know, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago saying, well, we don't want you going after protesters, but if you're going to go after the gangbangers and work with us, we'll take all the law enforcement resources you'll give us. Well, what she's doing is she's enabling Trump's reelection strategy. She's allowing Trump to say, see, Chicago's got problems. They're problems of immorality. They're problems of racial inferiority. And they can only be solved by putting a lot of young people in prison for the rest of their lives. And, and she is signaling with that acceptance that she goes along with that worldview. And she's going to help Trump get elected by going along with this. And this is true in these cities that are part of Operation Relentless Pursuit, like Detroit and Cleveland and Baltimore and Albuquerque, all run by Democrats, right? And Operation Legend, the newest kind of version of this, these are all being rolled out in Democratic cities to enable Trump to get reelected and these local mayors are going along with it. And this is a very interesting point that you bring up, because in Portland, we saw that the local mayor doesn't want them there. But then we others have said, well, the the history of the Portland police is different and that, that they have been just as vicious as police have been anywhere. And one of the things that we've seen now that Trump has decided to use this as a, you know, a re-election tactic, which is to mobilize federal troops who are not trained but are dressed to the max in uh, military gear but unidentified and using Pinochet's tactics of whisking them into unmarked vans, detaining them, anyone that they see that they think looks threatening, maybe dressed in black, that this is really galvanized protest against Trump and against this form of policing. And as we saw in Portland, it, uh, you saw the Wall of Moms and the Wall of Vets who thought, OK, we need to protect the Black Lives Matter movement by putting ourselves in front of them because surely they won't fire on us. But that has not been the case. And on the other hand, as this has garnered so much attention around the country, others have said that it has shifted the focus of the conversation about defunding the police to getting these troops out. And that the real focus is on police oppression and police brutality in a more everyday sense. 
going back to the murders that we've seen now on video over and over and over again. And that in some cases, they've even said that it's underlying the black leadership. And I know this is really complex, but I'd love to hear your take on all of that. Well, that is a lot to to kind of, I mean, I think for me, what's important about this moment is that, and part of the reason why it's been such a, a powerful movement of of resistance in the streets is that everyone understands that the leadership of both political parties, and this includes the Congressional Black Congress and and big city mayors, have failed, have no plan, no analysis. We look at the bill that came out from, from the Democrats in the House, it was terrible. If we look at how big city mayors are like, well, we'll cut 2% from the police budget if you'll leave us alone, right? And, you know, in L.A., it it was literally like they were going to increase it by 120, but they instead, you know, decreased it by 30 and said, oh, it's a $150 million cut. Yeah, I mean, that's just nothing. That's pennies. And so that's why the protests have continued. The political leadership across the board is not ready to deal with this. At the same time, We have a lot more work to do as a movement on the ground in the neighborhoods to convince our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers that we have better strategies for keeping them safe, that that there really are evidence-based approaches that are going to do a better job than just relying on armed police and that don't come with all the collateral consequences of, of mass criminalization. And this begs the largest question of all, and it's the way you end your book, Alex Vitale, on end the policing, that the way to solve the problem of public safety and policing is to end the police. And you've just come up with a few alternatives. And of course, it raises the question under capitalism, whether this is, is this a reform that is possible or is this aspirational? And maybe you could just finally lay out some of the things and ways that you see that it could be possible. So, people in this movement want to live in a world without police. They would like to live in a world where we don't put human beings in cages. And, and I want to live in a world like that too. Now we, there is not clarity across the board in this movement about exactly what that world looks like or exactly how to get there. But Sometimes people say, well, all this talk about the criminal justice system is a distraction from core economic issues and bigger social justice questions. And they imagine that we can organize like an anti-capitalist transformation without really addressing the criminal justice system head on. And I think that's a mistake. First of all, the way that so many people of color in our society experience the abuses of capitalism is specifically through the criminal justice system. How can we organize them in workplaces if they're unemployed, if they're surviving through participation in black markets that are heavily criminalized? If we're going to really build a cross-racial movement for liberation, the criminal justice system has to be central to that analysis and to the organizing in part because that criminal justice apparatus is going to be used to suppress our movements. 
whether they're labor movements or community justice movements or whatever. So any any radical movement, any anti-capitalist movement, democratic socialist movement that isn't directly challenging the power and ideology behind the criminal justice system, I think is just doomed to fail. So yes, I think Medicare for all is a criminal justice reform. It's a, it gets the police. I think robust public housing is a criminal justice reform and defunding police makes some of those things more possible. So they, they go together. I'm sure that you're heartened by how large the movement has been and how quickly it has captured the public imagination that perhaps we never would have thought possible, but watching a nine minute murder of George Floyd uh, seemed to really touch a nerve and now it's brought so much to light. So I guess the question is, you know, I'm talking to you when the economy is in total free fall. We're probably going to have to lock down all over the country again. And because the issue is even wearing a mask has become so politicized, some people may want to see the police forcing people to wear masks, you know. So given all of that, and this is really the last question, what do you think? Is this, how does this all relate to the arguments that you make and perhaps even a different role for ensuring public safety, including public health? Well, certainly we don't want social distancing enforcement turned over to the police, right? We saw what a failure that was. That is a political failure, right? Why aren't we doing the public health messaging in culturally sensitive ways that do peer-to-peer outreach? You know, some people are starting to to understand this in Miami. We see them working with well-known celebrities who have credibility in different communities, to get the message out about social distancing and mask wearing instead of having a few politicians stand up at their daily briefings where they try to look tough and have strong leadership. We don't need their voices. They don't have enough credibility among the people that need to hear these messages, right? Get get them off the TV and let's get some real people on there talking about this. In terms of the economy, I mean, we're in a desperate situation here, and I think now is the time to really talk about what kinds of transformative changes are needed. I mean, we need some kind of guaranteed minimum income. We need massive increases in family supports. You know, this idea that we have to send kids to school because that's the only possible way to get the economy going is just ridiculous. It's a nightmare. People should be paid to stay home and raise their kids safely until we can get through this. And, you know, we got to rebuild a public health infrastructure that's totally inadequate to the current task. You know, so much work to be done, but but real momentum, I think, at this moment. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Alex, and and agreeing to go much broader. And Alex Vitali, our guest, is the author. He's also a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He writes widely. He's interviewed. He's got his own podcast now on YouTube. And I first found you on Gothamist, something that I was there for the first time because I Googled something about police, and there you were. And so... Thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio, Alex Vitale. You bet, Susie. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.